Now, of course, you recognize that if I, at the moment I say that, it's like talking in English in order to show that the English language has limitations. And I am talking in a language that seems competitive to show that the competitive game has limitations. As if I were saying to all you cats here, look, I have something to tell you that is, and if you get this, you'll be in a better position than you were before you heard it. But I cannot speak to this group or the society or this language speaking culture without using the language, the gestures, the customs, etc. that you have. The Zen masters try to get around this by doing things suddenly that people just don't get. Well, what is this? Therefore, that is the reason why. This is the real reason why. Zen cannot be explained. You have to make, as it were, a jump from the valuation game of better people and worse people, in groups and out groups. And you can only make it by seeing that they all are mutually interdependent. So if we take this situation, let's say I would be talking to you and saying, look, uh, I have some very special thing that you've got to take notice of. Therefore, I am the in-group and I'm the teacher and you are the out-group. I know perfectly well that I cannot be the teacher unless you come And so that my status and my position is totally dependent on you. It isn't something you see, therefore I have first. And then you get. These things arise mutually. So if you wouldn't come, I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't know uh, what to say. Because <laughs> I borrowed your language. <laughs> So that, that, that is the insight that things go together. Then, when you see that and aren't in competition, then you don't make a mistake because you don't dither. No, and don't. Then you don't make a mistake because you don't dither. When I first learned the piano, and uh, play these wretched scales. The teacher beside me had a pencil in her hand and she hit my fingers every time I made a lot wrong note. Consequent was I never learned to read music because I hesitated too long to play the note on time. Because I was always, is this, is this pencil gonna land? See, and that gets built into your psyche. And so people are always, although they're adults and nobody is clubbing them around and screaming at them any longer, they hear the echoes of that screaming mama or that bombinating papa in the back of their heads all their life long. And so they adopt the same attitudes to their own children. And the farce continues. Because there is no, I mean, I don't say that you shouldn't uh, lay down the law to children if you want them to play the social game. But you, if you lay down the law to your children, you must make provision later in life for them to be liberated. To go through a process of curing them from the bad effects of education. But you can't do that unless you too grow up, you see, as we grow up.
says I including myself <laughs> so that is the, the thing now therefore in the Zen scene you would think that the master as we know him and as we read about him is an extremely authoritarian figure that's the way he deliberately comes on at the beginning he puts up a terrific show of being an awful dragon and this screens out all sorts of people who don't have somehow the nerve to get into the work but once you are in a very strange change takes place the master becomes the brother he becomes the affectionate helper of all those students and they love him as they would a brother rather than respect him as they would a father and therefore the students and masters they make jokes about each other they uh, have a very curious kind of social relationship which has all the outward trappings of the authoritarian but everybody knows on the inside that that's a joke liberated people have to be very cool otherwise in a society which doesn't believe in equality and cannot possibly practice it they would be considered extremely subversive therefore great zen masters wear purple and gold and carry scepters and sit in thrones and uh, all this is carried on to cool it believe that if we are honest with ourselves that the most fascinating problem in the world is who am i what do you mean what do you feel when you say the word i i myself i don't think there can be any more fascinating preoccupation than that because it's so mysterious it's so elusive because what you are in your inmost being escapes your examination in rather the same way that you can't look directly into your own eyes without using a mirror you can't bite your own teeth you can't taste your own tongue and you can't touch the tip of this finger with the tip of this finger and that's why there's always an element of profound mystery in the problem of who we are this problem has fascinated me for many years and i've made many inquiries what do you mean by the word i and there is a certain consensus about this a certain agreement especially among people who live in western civilization most of us feel i ego myself my source of consciousness to be a center of awareness and of a source of action that resides in the middle of a bag of skin and so we have what i have called the conception of ourselves as a skin encapsulated ego now it's very funny how we use the word i if we just refer to common speech
We are not accustomed to say, I am a body. We rather say, I have a body. We don't say, I beat my heart, in the same way as we say, I walk, I think, I talk. We feel that our heart beats itself, and that has nothing very much to do with I. In other words, we don't regard I myself as identical with our whole physical organism. We regard it as something inside it. And most Western people locate their ego inside their heads. You are somewhere between your eyes and between your ears and the rest of you dangles from that point of reference. It is not so in other cultures. When a Chinese or Japanese person wants to locate the center of himself, he points here, not here, here to what Japanese call the kokoro, or the Chinese call shin, the heart, mind. Some people also locate themselves in the solar plexus. But by and large, we locate ourselves between, behind the eyes and somewhere between the ears. As if within the dome of the skull, there was some sort of arrangement such as there is at the SAC headquarters in Denver, where there are men in great rooms surrounded with radar screens and all sorts of things and earphones on, watching all the movements of planes all over the world. So in the same way, we have really the idea of ourselves as a little man inside our heads who has earphones on, which bring messages from the ears, and who has a television set in front of him, which brings messages from the eyes, and all sorts of uh, electrode things that are all over his body, giving him signals from the hands and so on, and he has a panel in front of him of buttons and dials and things, and so he more or less controls the body, but he isn't the same as the body, because I am in charge of what are called the voluntary actions. And what are called involuntary actions of the body, they happen to me. I am pushed around by them, but to some extent also I can push my body around. This, I have concluded, is the ordinary average conception of what is oneself. And look at the way children, influenced by our cultural environment, ask questions. Mummy, who would I have been if my father had been someone else? You see, the child gets the idea from our culture that the father and mother gave him a body into which he was popped at some moment, whether it was conception or whether it was parturition is a little bit vague. But there is, in our whole way of thinking, the idea that we are a soul, a spiritual essence of some kind, imprisoned inside a body. And that we look out upon a world that is foreign to us. In the words of the poet Hausmann, I, a stranger and afraid, in a world I never made.
And so therefore we speak of confronting reality, facing the facts. We speak of coming into this world and this whole sensation that we are brought up to have of being an island of consciousness locked up in a bag of skin, facing outside us a world that is profoundly alien to us in the sense that what is outside me is not me. This sets up a fundamental sensation of hostility and estrangement between ourselves and the so-called external world. And therefore, we go on to talk about the conquest of nature, the conquest of space, and view ourselves in a kind of battle array towards the world outside us. I want to examine the strange feeling of being an isolated self. Now, actually, it is absolutely absurd to say that we came into this world. We didn't. We came out of it. What do you think you are? Supposing this world is a tree. Are you leaves on its branches? Or are you a bunch of birds that settled on a dead old tree from somewhere else? <laughs>